Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. It's been a while now. We've taken a break over the holidays, uh, but today it's me and Dr. Mohamed Ali Jardili uh, interviewing uh, Dr. Anis uh, Germani about the cholera epidemic in Lebanon. Dr. Germani actually just uh, graduated his medical school from the Lebanese University, but at the same time was also doing a master in public health at Université Saint-Joseph. And he has been very active uh, politically and on social media uh, and one of his interests has been the uh, cholera epidemic that recently hit uh, Lebanon. Uh, welcome, uh, Anis. Uh, welcome, Hamad Ali. Thank you for having me. So, it's good to be back. Yeah, I know it's been a long time. So, Anis, uh, can you just tell us a bit about uh, like an overview and history of the cholera uh, epidemic uh, in Lebanon? In Lebanon is one thing. I mean, uh, the issue of cholera started around the 19th century, and it's it's, most, it's basically one of those diseases that uh, came about and became of note through globalism. It was it started in the Gange River in India, and then it migrated through um, you know to 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 London. And I think this was the, the interesting thing about it is that uh, the cholera epidemic, the first cholera epidemic, was um, the the birthing place of. Uh, public health as we know it, uh, particularly through a scientist known as John Snow, who started like mapping uh, the cases and was able to identify um, the causes of transmission of cholera and how to prevent it. Um, so since this is such an archaic disease in that sense, it becomes of note to see it uh, recur in Lebanon, especially when uh, the last uh, case of cholera was cured in Lebanon in 1993. So th today we see this epidemic making a comeback. Uh, for many reasons. And I think what's interesting about it, uh, since we are living in a world today of pandemics, uh, is not specifically the occurrence of the epidemic of cholera that is a very treatable disease. Today we have antibiotics, we have uh, you know, hydration pro protocols, um, the whole thing. So it, the disease in of itself is not the issue. It's about what it reveals about our current um, healthcare system and the state that we find ourselves in. This is, this is very uh, interesting uh, introduction, and I think now would be a good time to maybe uh, tell our listeners more about the situation of the current outbreak in Lebanon right now, uh, if you have some numbers that you can share with us. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, we cannot separate, uh, in terms of, of, of public health, we cannot separate entities that are connected. So we cannot speak about Lebanon without speaking about Syria as well. So the first case was recorded in Syria uh, in August of last year. Um, six weeks later, the, fir the first case is recorded in Lebanon in the area of Akkar. So far, uh, we've had 6,000 cases, uh, reported cases in Lebanon, whether they are suspected or confirmed uh, in, in, in uh, cultures, uh, and 70, 77,000 cases in Syria. Uh, there has been 23 deaths uh, in Lebanon. And uh, so and the, the, the thing is still ongoing. And of course, we have um, a lot of underreporting, uh, considering the, the state of the Lebanese healthcare system and the Syrian healthcare system. So our healthcare system has been ravaged completely by a very acute and sharp uh, economic crisis, the migration of uh, healthcare workers. In Syria, we're talking about a decade long now civil war that has uh, almost destroyed the entire country. So, so, and, so can you tell uh, us a bit? Yeah, go ahead. I'm no, I was going to ask, how, how, what do you 
make of those numbers? I know 23 deaths are a lot of deaths, but it seems that the media and the politicians are like downplaying the numbers and saying that we have it under control. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it's it's a bit hard to to um, to respond directly, especially in the case of the Lebanese uh, Ministry of of Public Health, that is notorious for you know not uh, to being like very very conservative with, with data. I, mean, I think this is an issue that uh, all uh, public health professionals and experts face with the Minister, Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon is that they do not reveal uh, important data, or even they don't even, they don't even collect it which is a bigger problem because th that means that they don't even know and, and we don't know by, by proxy. So uh, whether it's in control or not, that, that will be seen in the future because uh, at the very beginning of the epidemic of the outbreak uh, in Lebanon, uh, there was a warning that uh, the cases might reach the 600,000 and we today are allegedly at 6,000 cases. So either we are not counting correctly or we still have a lot to see in the future or we're actually containing it. Honestly, I am not in a position to to have a definitive answer on that. But we don't have the numbers, obviously. So uh, what are the public health uh, versus medicine, the structural, political, economic origins of the outbreak? Because it started in mm -hmm. Syria. So what's the connection, I guess, between the starting in Syria and then moving over to Lebanon? And what caused it to spread in Lebanon? Well, uh, let me just start by saying that um, it was not a surprise. It was going to start in Syria and move to Lebanon. First of all, cholera is a notorious disease. It is known that in countries that are ravaged either by war, by, by poverty, uh, by natural disasters, cholera soon follows immediately. It is, it is not a shocker. And on the other hand, the idea that, that the fact that it migrated from Syria to Lebanon is also not a shock. We have very porous borders and trying to ignore that or, or trying to blame uh, the epidemic in Lebanon on, on Syrians is, is practically, is just absurd, if not borderline, you know, racist. Uh, because there is another fact that we, we tend to forget, and that is that uh, in the past uh, decade or so, there has been two outbreaks of cholera in, in Syria that had not migrated to Lebanon. One happened before the war in Syria, before 2011, and the second one happened after 2011. None of these uh, outbreaks uh, moved into Lebanon. Then the question becomes why? And that is because the only difference is that Lebanon today finds itself in a in a crisis, an economic crisis that has completely ravaged its healthcare system. And looking back on the past uh, 30 years and what we have done in terms of infrastructure, in terms of our healthcare system, and what's happening uh, with the Syrian population that's, that's residing in Lebanon and the Lebanese population residing in Lebanon, we see that this is basically, it's been a long time coming, honestly. It's it, we're basically, we have been concocting a, a health, a, a public health bomb in Lebanon on. And now we're, we, we can't be surprised when it blew up in our faces. So um, in the past 30 years, one of the main uh, modes of transmission of cholera is uh, it, it's a waterborne disease. So it happens mostly when you have uh, drinking water that is contaminated by sewage or uh, water that you use for irrigation of plants that is also contaminated by sewage. So if you look back in, uh, during the past 30 years on the expenditure that was done on uh, waterways in terms of um, inf infrastructure that has to do with drinking water, we'll find that the government has spent approximately $1 billion only in 30 years on, uh, on that infrastructure. And on, in terms of the, 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 the infrastructure to, uh, to irrigate the irrigation infrastructure, it's also another billion dollars across 30 years. And that's compared to $250 billion that the government spent. So only $2 billion on water infrastructure in Lebanon. 
So it is no wonder today that we find ourselves in this situation when uh, the infrastructure is completely messed up. We have sewage water that is contaminating drinking water. There is approximately 40% of the water that is um, being dispensed within the infrastructure goes to waste because of, uh, because of a poor upkeep of, of that infrastructure. Uh, at the same time, UNICEF warned uh, Lebanon in 2020, so one year after the crisis, it warned uh, Lebanon of an impending uh, crisis of waterborne diseases, particularly affecting children, because of that fact, so as soon as one year on after the crisis, um, the, the facilities that had to do with cleaning the water and pumping the water stopped functioning because there was no fuel left. And uh, then people found, found themselves lacking water. The next year, or in 2022, actually, so the same year that the epidemic started in Lebanon, they issue another warning with another report saying that, yes, we find ourselves today in a crisis, a water crisis in Lebanon. Uh, the average water consumption dropped to the bare minimum for people that are able to survive. 50% of people who depend uh, on the uh, government infrastructure for water are lacking water. The other 50% find themselves in trouble to get water because the price has been hiked by four to six times. So, um, so I, I kind of remember the, the the first you know recommendations that were issued by the Ministry of Public Health when the epidemic started in Lebanon. They were saying, yeah, drink uh, drink clean water. I'm like, you know, what do you do with that? If they could, has anybody had the choice between drinking clean water and dirty water, and they pick the dirty water? Who would do that? So, telling people to drink clean water as if it's it's a thing that, that they have a choice in. You know, is, is is borderline, you know, absurd. So, um, okay. So the thing is, um, the the system that we live in today, for and it, it that has been under construction and deconstruction for the past thirty years, has led us to this moment. There is no one single event that can be pointed at, and that would we can say, oh yeah, this is because of you know uh, the war in Syria or the the migrants uh, in, in Lebanon or uh, poverty, strictly speaking. It's it's a whole thing. It's basically if you want to boil it down to one thing, which is also a very broad umbrella term, it's austerity. Is austerity. It's the moment that the government decided to pay $2 billion on water infrastructure in Lebanon while paying $40 billion, a third of all of its ex expenditures in terms of servicing its loan to the banks, then this was a clear political choice that was made. And that is, I will, as a state, as a Lebanese state, I will favor the interests of banks over the interests of my people. And the, these these choices had consequences, maybe not at the time before, because there was a lot of money to spare. So if I cannot you know, access water, I can buy my own bottled water, but today we have to face the consequences of these choices. And so, uh, a follow-up question to this, because a lot of the politicians in Lebanon tend to try to blame the uh, migrants for the crisis. Uh, is that is that a true statement or not? And the second question is, I mean, they don't even treat the sewage, right? There's no treatment of the sewage and it just flows down to the sea and then it mixes with the drinking water. And people, I mean, a lot of people, there's a lot of poverty. So people cannot even afford to buy drinking water because drinking water is expensive at this point. Yeah. So the thing, but a quick thing, the people who are going to blame uh, Syrian refugees for the epidemic are the same people who had, who received a lot of funding. So they didn't even have to pay for it. It's a lot of funding to uh, build sewage the day they are built. And according to the same UNICEF report, all of these facilities 
are completely unusable because of disuse and lack of investment in them. So these people are definitely are going are gonna to scapegoat the Syrian refugees. Whenever there's a problem in Lebanon, it's very easy to scapegoat the Syrian refugees. When we don't have bread, when we don't have fuel, when our economy is, is in shambles, we blame the poorest of the poor in Lebanon. So uh, if you look at, uh, at the situation of refugees, it, it is definitely a crime against humanity that we are committing against them. And at the same time, we are making sure that these people will be the most vulnerable. And then these people are definitely, as as a vulnerable uh, category of people, they're going to be more likely to catch just diseases. So we have uh, in the Lebanese uh, citizens suffer from 80% uh, poverty, multidimensional poverty. 40% of them are in extreme poverty. In the Syrian population, 90% of them live in extreme poverty. Almost 100% of them in debt to buy food. So what are we doing to these people? So that there's thing about um, in public health that we that we talk about, and these are the social determinants of health. And that is, you know, as a doctor, I see a patient and why they are sick, and I think about the biological reasons at that point and their treatment, and I try to fix that and 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 address that. In public health, most diseases are man-made; they're not biological, and these these factors are poverty, are our homelessness, are unemployment. These are the things that make sure that either you have a disease or not. And it, taking into account what we're doing to the, or actually not doing, because we're completely ignoring the, the Syrian population in Lebanon, we are making sure that these people remain sick. And in terms of, um, in terms of infectious diseases, there's no such thing as ignoring a population that's living in the same geographic space that you, that you also live in. If they're going to catch infectious diseases, you're going to also catch that as well. So ignore, ignore not a solution. So you, you raise an interesting point uh, in that the onus of responsibility should not fall onto the individuals, right? There is nothing uh, that those vulnerable populations can do to prevent cholera in terms of access to clean drinking water to, to begin with. Um, and in terms of the border, I know at the beginning of the epidemic and the beginning of the outbreak in Lebanon, there was some concern of uh, the cholera outbreak even moving to our southern border to occupy Palestine. But I don't think... Uh, that happened. Is, is there an explanation to what happened uh, at the southern board, border? Well, the southern border is closed, so why would it move? I mean, sure, through the river, different streets. We, we, and, share, and, the, and, the and river, we share the river. We share the water resources. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, but but that uh, that also depends on what the occupation forces uh, of Israel in Palestine are doing. And honestly, I do not know what they're doing. Neither do I care. But. Uh, you know, so so, uh, but definitely the, the 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 movement of of the epidemic, you know, would be definitely uh, stopped uh, by a very you know by a rigid border. Management. I mean, uh, not just that. I mean, like a very rigid border. I mean, you know, because when you're running an apartheid state, I mean, nobody can come in or come out. So, so the people cannot go in. People infected people cannot go in to even infect them. So, regardless, even if if it's just the water, but but people also. Are, are an important mode of transmission of diseases. Okay, so so to summarize, we can say that this uh, outbreak of cholera was 100% avoidable were it not for a series of uh, austerity measures taken over the past uh, 30 years, right? So this outbreak reveals more about the state of the Lebanese healthcare system than it does about the, the, the biological uh, modality of cholera transmission. Is that a fair assessment, you would say? 
Definitely, definitely. And even if we look at uh, globally, uh, if we look at the uh, occurrence of uh, cholera epidemics in the year of 2022, we will find that there is a record-breaking uh, number of epidemics this year. There has been 29 epidemics that year, according to the WHO. Usually the average is around 20 per year. So this means that the entire world, is, since the entire world is living under some form of austerity, and uh, according to, to a, re a recent report that was published by a series of, of organization groups and NGOs, 80% of humanity today lives under some form or another of austerity. So it is not, these events are not disconnected at all because by deciding not to, not to invest in the security of your people, and I mean specifically in the health of your people, you're basically saying that I want you to die so that I can take that money and give it to somebody else. And in, in most cases, it is the, the large financial institutions. And this is exactly what austerity does. It's a choice to, to kill people by not deciding to, to, to pay for their healthcare, their education, their infrastructure, their, their, their way of life, all of these things. So uh, yeah, definitely it's a clear, there is a, this definite correlation between the two. And there's also the, the acute management of the, of the epidemic itself. So there was a six week gap between the, the, the onset of the epidemic in Syria and the onset of the first, uh, the first case in Lebanon. Did we hear about any, any preventive measure that happened be, between those six weeks? No. Six weeks later, the the, the first vaccine uh, is dispensed uh, in Lebanon. This these six weeks that happened, these, these three months that elapsed, we could have started, uh, you know, asking for vaccines because definitely we're not going to buy them. But we could, we could have started asking for them uh, like at the very beginning. So at the at the moment when the first case is recorded in Lebanon, we would already be starting dispensing vaccines. I mean, there is a lot of you know shortcomings for sure, but I mean, uh, it's definitely a, a mix of years of austerity and the uh, messed up, you know, ma acute management of the epidemic. And even by focusing on vaccination, right? Even by focusing on vaccination, that uh, and it removes the responsibility of the government response in terms of uh, providing clean water, in terms of uh, waste management, water management. We saw a lot of focus on vaccination and complete disregard to everything else uh, that can be done. Yeah, I think this is more of a PR choice. Uh, and this is not something new. I mean, our government is not even original in PR campaigns. So if, if you look, you can easily compare it to the COVID uh, pandemic. Response. Uh, when, yeah, the, the, like across the world. So when when governments didn't want to provide for their citizens, not for their health care, not for uh, co not compensating them for staying at home, what did they say? Just, you know, take the vaccine and do whatever. I don't care about what's going to happen to you. Take the vaccine as if it's like a, as if it's going to also solve all sorts of problems. Problems, all sorts of you know underlying social, political, and economic problems. So definitely, I think they're taking you know a, a page out of that book in in Lebanon, saying yeah, just uh, take the the cholera vaccine and everything will be fine. But even in in that, I mean, at least in Syria, a war, literally a war torn country, uh, as of as of last month, I think they had already almost met uh, the target population vaccination. They had dispensed one million and nine hundred thousand uh, vaccines out of. Uh, 2 million. I mean, in Lebanon, now we're reaching 600,000. And, you know, so they, there's definitely, and they have much, many more cases, a larger territory, more people, we have a lot less of all, all of these things. And definitely, um, you know, vaccines are, are, for cholera are definitely are not a long-term solution. They're only a temporary solution to quell uh, the the outbreak, but it's not going to fix, uh, it's not going to fix, you know, the, the infrastructure, it's not going to fix poverty, it's not going to fix the uh, complete marginalization of the poor, of the refugees, of you know, of literally all of the Lebanese population. So a vaccine cannot fix these things, but people can.
what, what they're only giving for? a one dose vaccine, right? So, sorry, Khalid, they're only giving a one dose vaccine out of the two series, right? Because of the yeah. worldwide uh, outbreaks. Like yeah, there's saying, a global, like, yeah, there's a global shortage of, of vaccines because of the 29 epidemics this year, definitely. And of course, because the, the COVID vaccine was prioritized, the production of the COVID vaccine was prioritized over others. So, yeah. And also, I guess the cholera, cholera affects uh, poorer populations. So probably you don't make as much vaccine. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sell. <laughs> another yeah, one. it doesn't sell. Yeah. So what, what are, so basically, I mean, even if we quell the epidemic right now in Lebanon, there's still a huge infrastructure uh, problem that has not been solved. So do you think the government will act to solve this problem, uh, provide clean water for citizens, clean the sewage? Uh, what are your future predictions regarding that? And what are your future predictions regarding cholera and other epidemics that could arise in Lebanon because of this? Well, if the same government in a different shape that has been present for the past 30 years wanted to fix the infrastructure, they had 30 years to do that. They're definitely not going to do it now after they went bankrupt. So no, I do not see that at all as something that's about to happen. At the same time, uh, I cannot separate... Uh, any kind of public health solution from a political solution. Because healthcare is political. The idea that do I believe that uh, healthcare is a right versus a commodity to be bought and sold, this is a political choice. And based on that, uh, you know, there, there has to be definitely a political change for people to have access to healthcare in Lebanon, for people to have drinking water, for people to be able to, uh, you know, to go into hospitals, to be to be even, the right even to be healthy, not even to go to a hospital, to just be healthy, clean air, clean water, a job, uh, not being poor, good food, all of these things are inherently political, but they are also uh, direct causes of bad or good health. So health is, is extremely political. I would have hoped that this would have been a wake-up call for the Lebanese leaders to see a cholera outbreak in Lebanon and read Lebanon's name along countries as the DRC, Haiti, Malawi, Somalia, Pakistan, like countries, like you said, in Syria that are ridden with war. And to see Lebanon in that list, I would have hoped this would have been a wake-up call. But I, I don't. what will it take for them to take this seriously, like I, I don't get it. Honestly, nothing. They don't take it seriously. They don't care. <laughs> it's okay. People, for them, honestly, for them, if we if we die, it, it will be better for them because we will be consuming less, and that means less dollars leaving the country. I'm pretty sure they're they're glad, you know. And if if in, in you know uh, throughout this uh, this outbreak they're gonna get a few extra donations, then then why the hell not? <laughs> so they don't care. They will not care. Uh, and we we shouldn't be naive enough to ask them to care. And at the same time. Uh, I mean, why are we surprised that we're on the same list as, you know, Syria and Haiti and, you know, countries of the global south? This is where we've always been. We've had, we just have been living in an illusion for the past 30 years, but this is where we belong. Yeah, there was a disconnect with, like, the reality and... Yeah, yeah. But I mean, these were buffer, I mean, money is a buffer mechanism. It lets you, you know, live a, a happy, comfortable life. You know, you don't have access to public uh, public drinking water. Buy your own bottled water from Nestle. Pay a foreign company to drink water in Lebanon that has a lot of rivers and an excess of water and an excess of rainfall per year. So these were buffer mechanisms. These buffer mechanisms, they are over, you know. So, so now we have to face reality as it is actually we have to face it even worse because now we, we're not just uh you know starting from point zero we're starting from negative 100 billion dollars 
So yeah, now we have to you know face the music, as they say. How, how can we help as individuals, I guess? Because in Lebanon, I mean, when the explosion happened, individuals stepped up, NGOs stepped up, started uh, fixing houses. And every time it's the individuals, not the government, who helps. So how, how can we help as individuals? Or what are people doing right now as NGOs to try to help with this situation? I think the only room for individual action today is political action. There is nothing that one individual can do to undo 30 years of underinvestment, to quell an epidemic, to, to fix poverty and hunger and lack of access to water. There is nothing, not, like it, it's absurd to even, even, you know, even try. But at the same time, one individual can do a lot politically. And, and since, as I said before, this is an inherently political issue. It's a problem of politics and how people are seen and, and what, how the state decides to treat its citizens. Then, then this is where our focus should be. You know, to every diagnosis, it's treatment, and this is the diagnosis. Therefore, the treatment must be to be engaged in politics. This is a, a call for arms, as they say, right? Uh, Definitely. I mean, I think yeah, it's political. Yeah, there's no way yeah, around yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you told me, I mean, that that you have an audience that is made up mostly of of doctors. I don't, I don't think uh, that anybody. I mean, I, I, I cannot see a doctor as a non-political individual, even though unfortunately they are. Most of them are. But I mean, I don't think there is any profession that would that would put you in so much conflict with need and and vulnerability as med as a medical profession. So uh, it, how, in, in order to face that that reality that the the, the, the suffering that we see every day. There has to be something else than than just thinking, you know, about like that one patient, one treatment, next case. You know, th there's there's more that we can do, and and I think that the, the best example is that you know the, we we always have these patients that are admitted repeatedly. You know, like you you see them uh, ten times a year. They they come, they 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 leave in one week. They're back. You know, these these people do not have strictly medical problems. There is a reason why they they keep on getting readmitted. There they, they, these guys have 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 needs that are being unmet. That, that is why they remain sick after you have done your best to treat them and somehow they get sick and they come back to you again. That means that we are, we're not addressing the actual issue. And that is why I definitely see um, doctors and, and medical practitioners with a lot of political potential that is uh, so far untapped. Yeah, have any doctors come together? Have I mean, I know the syndicate hasn't been very involved with the, with the outbreak, but have there been any uh, initiatives of doctors coming together uh, to, to 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 provide solutions? Honestly, not not to my knowledge. Not that I've read or heard anything about it. And at the same time, you know, the the syndicate of doctors has a lot to worry about, particularly the the insurance plan of of doctors. I mean, you know, the whole thing's a mess. So uh, can can they even provide help for anybody if they can't even help themselves? I don't know. Unfortunately, it's been low on the priority list. Unfortunately, there are problems with that. So, Anissa, uh, from your standpoint, what are what are your uh, future plans yourself? My future plans? Uh, well, finish internal medicine. Uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. I I like internal medicine. I, I would I don't I don't see myself specializing in one specific system. Uh, definitely pursue a doctorate in um, in public health, something that would merge 
you know, the problems that we see today, austerity, inequality, and uh, I don't know, a way out of this, uh, I don't know, neoliberal nightmare that we find ourselves in. Any final thoughts? Uh, well, honestly, I think I've, I've said everything I have to say. I, I, can, I cannot stress enough the importance of political engagement because we are surrounded by politics and people make choices every day. And, and we live even the way, even if we see ourselves as free and, and, and you know, individualistic individuals, even the choices that we make have already been decided by somebody else. So why not, you know, um, enforce our own options to as part of the choices that we have to make in order at least to survive, if not anything else? I think that's a great way uh, to, to end the podcast. Um, we talked about the social determinants of health, but more importantly, the political and economical uh, determinants uh, of health. And uh, you, you gave a very good summary about the cholera uh, outbreak in Syria and in, in Lebanon and how the onus of responsibility is not onto the individuals. And we should uh, come together as doctors uh, and strive for political change because that is the root cause of uh, the cholera outbreak and other future epidemics. Right, Lebanon right now is very vulnerable to uh, any number of uh, foreseeable uh, outbreaks in the future. So uh, everything's on the table right now until uh, we find the political and economical uh, way out of this mess that we're in. Absolutely. Both for uh, being on the podcast, and I hope the listeners will uh, learn more about the epidemic. And hopefully, this somebody will help out to quell uh, future epidemics in Lebanon. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank I think Anissa's so energy is contagious, so I hope uh, <laughs> people feel invigorated <laughs> to do something about so. this. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. Pleasure.